We are doing commandments one and two, so those are verses one through six, and it reads this way. Then God spoke all these words saying, Exodus 20, verse two. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, the NIV says to a thousand generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You may be seated. Lord God, thank you for your living word. Thank you for the 10 commandments, the often called the 10 words. Thank you that they really were the basis of Western civilization in terms of how we are to conduct ourselves, Lord. And they speak to us even today because the moral law of God has not changed. Yet it has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life that we could never live, died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin, rose from the dead, and lives today to help us fulfill the law. We can't do it in our own strength, Lord, but with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can hit the mark, we can do what you've called us to do. And today, I pray that you would set us more free by understanding the purpose of the law and how it drives us to Christ and also understanding the empowering of the Holy Spirit you give us to love the way you've called us to love. So would you give us wisdom and insight? Would you give us ears to hear what you would say to your church in this hour for your glory in Jesus' name and all God's people said? Amen. Amen. The Ten Commandments, one and two. You'll notice in verse one, God spoke, then God spoke, the Hebrew word debar, all these words saying, this is the word of God. God literally spoke in the very history in which we live. It was a while ago. It was thousands of years ago. But God spoke, and he has spoken in many ways throughout the centuries, through prophets, through the word of God, through his own dear son, whom he sent into the world to convey the message of God to us. God has spoken. These are called the 10 words, and if you flip over to uh, Exodus 34 for a moment. Look at verse 28. This is actually where they're called the 10 words or the 10 commandments. I'll give you the Hebrew in a second. Exodus 34:28 says, so Moses, 34:28, was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights up on Mount Sinai. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant. That's a key thought, the Hebrew word barit, it's, it means to cut literally. It is a contract, but something beyond a contract. And in the Hebrew picture language, it actually means the sign of my son or the cross of my son. And so the words of the covenant were written. They were written down later after they were spoken. And there they are called the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. The Ten Words in Hebrew are Debarim, and it's the words that God spoke out to the children of Israel on the mount. And by the way, the children of Israel did hear these 
before they were written. Take a look at 2018. Right after the last of the Ten Commandments in 17 is articulated, all the people, Exodus 20, 18, perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. The people were afraid. They heard the voice of the Lord as the voice of thunder, as God thundered these 10 words or these 10 commandments. The foundation of these 10 words is relational. Look at verse two. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God is saying, I brought you out, and now here's what I expect of you. I loved you first. I saved you out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery for us as New Testament Christians. I, I saved you from the slave market of your sin, from Satan, who's a picture of Pharaoh, from the taskmaster of your sin, from bondage. And now I'm bringing you out, and now this is what I want you to do. We love him because he first loved us. Amen, 1 John 4, 19. So this is the response of the children of Israel to the saving work of God coming in to rescue them out of Egypt. And this is in the form of a covenant contract. I mentioned to you the word last week, ketubah. A ketubah is, in a Jewish wedding, the contract between the groom and the bride. The two fathers would sit down in the ancient world and they would haggle and work out a dowry, something called a bride price. And then a written contract would be uh, commenced and they would agree to it. Where we, when we do a wedding in today's world, we do a verbal vow. In the ancient world, they did a written ketubah, a written contract. That's why there are some that believe that both the tablets that Moses write on, wrote on are identical, or the, actually the finger of God wrote them. And they are duplicates of the same 10 words. One for the groom, one for the bride. We are, in that picture, the bride of Christ. We're not Israel, of course. We're in the new covenant. And the new covenant is superior to the old. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But that's the imagery here. It's marriage covenant imagery. I saved you. I rescued you. I made you my own. Now this is how you can love me back. And God gives parameters for that. And of course, they're filled with a lot of you shall nots there. Now, if you flip over to Matthew, hold your place in Exodus 22. Jesus is in the midst of his earthly ministry, and a lawyer came up to Jesus, Matthew 22, first gospel of the New Testament, and had a question for him. The question was actually a test. And an ancient lawyer was not a lawyer like we would know one. You know, you get in a car accident, call 1-800-THIS-GUY, and he'll help you out and get you some money. In, in this setting, a lawyer is an expert in the Jewish law or the Torah. If you're interested, the word for law in Hebrew is Torah, T-O-R-A or A-H. Literally, in the Hebrew picture language, Torah means to hit the mark. Sin means to miss the mark. And we all miss the mark every day. We all fall short of the standards that we would hope that we would live by consistently Torah means to hit the mark. So the lawyer came to Jesus. This is Matthew 22. And he asked him this question. Skip down to verse 36. 
22:36, teacher, which is the great commandment in the Torah, in the law? And Jesus said to him, 22:37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Some versions say your strength as well. And then he adds something that wasn't asked of him. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice, on these two commandments depend the whole law or hangs the whole law and the prophets. Now, when Jesus was asked about the great commandment of the law, he gave two which are not from Exodus 20. They're actually from Leviticus and from Deuteronomy. But they sum up the negatives, if you will, the, the you shall nots, into a positive you shall. In fact, he took the 10 you shall nots and put them into two you shall. And it's just this simple. You shall love the Lord your God with everything that you are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. It's the horizontal now, the vertical, love God with everything you are. The horizontal, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws, according to Jesus, hang the entire Bible, if you will, or the entire Old Testament. Now, if you look back at your week, this last week, you're already laughing. You guys need application, don't you? How would you say that you did with loving God with everything that you are, from the core of who you are, soul, mind, strength, etc., and loving your neighbor just like you love yourself. So when you were going to go get your frozen yogurt this week, you were thinking to yourself, oh, I'm going to get this for so-and-so first. Do you do that? I, I have to confess, I usually don't. I'm usually just thinking, yogurt for me. And I love the little taste cups. Usually if you eat enough of those, you don't even have to pay for your yogurt. No, that's a breaking of another law. Simply put, Jesus took the law of the shall nots and put it into a positive, the shall. If we could remember that to hit the mark is simply to love God first and to love others first, we'd be doing well. But here's the problem. We often don't hit the mark. We can be very self-absorbed, very selfish. The culture feeds into that to make it all about you. But God's two highest laws connected to who he is, what's most important to God is right here in the top 10, brethren, or in the top two, as Jesus put it. This is the heart of God because the law flows from God himself. Now flip over to Romans. It's a little bit to your right. And take a look at Romans 7. The law is not the problem. The law is good. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans 7. The problem is me. It's not the law. If there was a law that could save me, then God would have given it. But take a look at verse 12, Romans 7. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good because it comes from the one who's holy and righteous and good. Look at 14, 714. For we know that the law is spiritual. It's good, it's holy, and it's even spiritual. But the problem is I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I don't understand. I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. If I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. 
The law shows me how to hit the mark. 22, 7. 722. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, in my spirit. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. It's like in me still, even though I want to do the right thing. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And then a celebration. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Skip down to verse 8.1. So there is therefore now no condemnation. You're not condemned if you're in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, what the Torah could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, what did he do? He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh so that, here's the last verse for Romans, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, the church, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Notice that the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled, but it is in those who walk according to the power of the Holy Spirit. That is, when you're walking with the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit will come out, and the first fruit of the Spirit is love. So if you want to love the way that the law or the Torah would call upon you to love, you need the power of the Holy Spirit. God's given us two incredible gifts, the gift of his own son to come and live the perfect life that we could never live and die for us, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, I will send you another helper, and he will come to you. I won't leave you alone, etc. These are two great gifts from heaven that help us in the fulfillment of the law. Just one more in Romans 13. Flip over there, Romans 13, and take a look. Paul uh, goes through some of the commands, and then he just gives this summary statement. And Jesus obviously anticipating this statement. It says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, Romans 13, 10. Therefore, love is what? Love is the fulfillment of the law. If you want to fulfill the law, it is simply love, but it is God's kind of love. It is truth in love, as you're going to see in a moment. And so back to Exodus chapter 20. The covenant is made, a ketubah, something like a marriage contract. One author put it, put it this way, one cannot speak about covenant without law. The purpose of law is to provide boundaries to that, to that relationship. If honored, it will go a long way in perpetuating the relationship. He says, what banks are to a river, law is to covenant. Take away the banks of a river, and the river quickly becomes a swamp. Take away the regulations, and an athletic sport competition devolves into chaos. There is a world of difference between boundaries that destroy life and boundaries that direct life. So you have to see the covenant aspect in this to know that God is laying out how Israel is to love him. It's a contract. It's a covenant. You don't enter, enter into a covenant and just say, we'll figure it out as we go along. No, when you go to make a vow to someone, taking the marriage vow, for example, there's things that are spoken to the groom and the bride. Will you put her first? Will you have no other you know, people in your life, et cetera, et cetera. Sickness and health, till death do you part. Uh, I will, I will. And then the covenant is sealed, if you will. 
That's what's happening at Mount Sinai. And remember, when the people heard what God asked of them, they were like, we will, we do, we do, we will. And we're like, uh, we're reading after the fact and we know they won't. And uh, I'll use the illustration of a premarital counseling session. By the way, uh, they say that couples that go through premarital counseling have a much higher success rate than those who don't. And in premarital counseling, you try to give as much as you can to a young couple about what the expectations of the covenant are, what the roles are, what God says about this relationship, so that we go into a marriage with our eyes wide open. After you get married, keep them half shut, and you'll be doing really, really well. And so this is what's happening in Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai. God is giving his law. And he's giving boundaries. And one of the main boundaries that he has for his people is that I want you to be faithful to me. Using the image of faithfulness in marriage, I don't want you to commit adultery with other gods with a small g. We'll talk about that in a second. I want you to be faithful to me. I want you to love me first. I don't want you to bring other things in your life. And here's the important thing to remember God gives us boundaries because he knows what's best for us. He knows if you go out and live your life in a chaotic way and you don't live an ordered life and you don't live a life of commitment, then your life will be chaotic. He gives loving boundaries to us. This is what God wants. God wants, do you believe that God knows the best for your life? Then you pay attention to God's word because daddy does know best. And he's giving you guidelines so that you can find the best that this life has. And so we pay attention to these supreme commandments because they are from the heart of God to people that he loves. He says of Israel, Isaiah 43, 4, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. In Jeremiah 31, 2 through 4, the Lord says, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when it uh, went to find its rest. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt. O virgin of Israel, again you shall take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. Jeremiah 31, 2 through 4. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with loving kindness. And someone might say, well, why did God love Israel? Why, why did he convey his love to them? Not because they were more numerous than other peoples or anything else. God simply decided to love her. And he acted out that love through the prophet Hosea. That, that although Hosea's wife named Gomer, not kidding, her name was Gomer, and some of you will get this, surprise, surprise, surprise. Never mind, it's an old TV show. What her parents were thinking, I do not know. But anyway, but Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea. Hosea's name means salvation. But the prophet was called to love her despite the fact that she would be unfaithful. And you know what? God continues to love us even when we're wayward. Even when we're faithless, he is faithful. But it would be good if we would be faithful to the covenant because being faithful to the covenant shows that we love him. Jesus said, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. You can say that you love God all day long, but the proof is really going to be how you live, right? I mean, talk is cheap. So Jesus said, if you, if you say that you love me, then I want you to do what I say. One writer says, so frightening was this for the people to experience that as soon as God finished these words, they said, Moses, you talk to him and tell us what he has to say. All the people were hearing the voice of God just as Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, and the patriarchs had heard it. And as Moses had heard it earlier on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb when God first called him. And so now this would be forever implanted in the minds of the people. I am the Lord your God. Look at verse 2. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. I want you to see that the Ten Commandments are based on a foundation of relationship. I am the Lord your God. That's repeated over and over again. And it has the implication that this God has a personal relationship with every single individual within the nation. Sometimes when we look at a room like this and we kind of walk it out to our city and our state and our world, we think, man, there's so many people. How can God really know me personally? But God does know you. And if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you. He knows you very, very well. He knows your struggles. He knows the things that, you know, maybe bother you in the midst of the night and questions that you may have and Maybe sometimes you look inside and you wonder, man, can I do this? Can I measure up, etc.? And he says, I am the Lord your God. David put it this way. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And I, and I would ask you, is the Lord your God? Would you say that, that he is my God? Well, he is faithful. He says in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. I bought you out of the house of slavery. I love you. Now I want you to follow me. I'm your creator. I'm your redeemer. I'm your sustainer. Sometimes when people hear about the God of the Bible, they ask questions like this. Well, does God, the God of the Bible have a right to tell me what to do? Usually it's formed this way. You don't have any right to tell me what to do. Well, if you're speaking the word of God to somebody, remember, you're just simply conveying God's truth to them. They may not like it, but God has every right to tell us what to do. Why? Throw it out to me. Why do you think God has a right to tell you what to do? He created you. You're breathing his air, walking on his dirt. You got a beating heart you don't even have to think about. He made that. He made your circulatory system. He gave you ears. He gave you a nose to smell. He gave you taste buds. How glorious. Tonight, there's going to be candy. Right? Now, it would be one thing if you pulled up to a human fueling station and just, okay, I'm ready to go. No, no, no. We get to eat. We get to, okay, I'm going to leave that alone. But, we get to enjoy it, right? This is what God has created. He created you. He came to redeem you. He sustained you. And he's prepared a place for you after this life. Does he have a right to speak into your life? I think he does. But it's the question of, is he your God? The law reflects the divine character of God. 
and it reflects the character of the lawgiver. It's important to him. It should be important to us. Commandment number one, verse three, you shall have no other gods, notice it's small g, before me. Now don't divorce the first two verses from what is said here. It's based on a relationship, a saving relationship, a love relationship. And then he says, have no other gods before me. That means besides me, above me, in addition to me, together with me, beyond me, above me, over me, over against me. It means that any other God, so-called God, stands in opposition to the true God, for there is only one true God. One true God with a capital G. We were doing some homeless ministry years ago as a pretty new pastor, and uh, they said, go up to this certain guy. He was a homeless guy, but he was a believer. And they said, ask him to, sm- to spell God, or he'll ask you to spell God. And so he says, hey, pastor, spell God. And I said, G-O-D. And he said, oh, capital G-O-D. Why do you say that? Because when you capitalize the G, you're talking about the God. The one true God. Jesus put it this way. There's only, John 17, 3, one true God. If there's only one true God, that makes other, all other gods. Thank you. If there's only one true God, this is deep. See if you can, you might need a Snickers right now just to keep, keep you alive. If there's only one true God, all other gods are. Now, on Wednesday night, we looked at the deity of Jesus Christ, and we finished up 1 John. 1 John 5, 19 through 21. And it says of Jesus, this is the true God and eternal life. And then it said, little children, guard yourselves from idols. That's a New Testament book. And we went through verse after verse in Isaiah, chapters 40 through 48, where God says over and over again, I am God and there is no other. There was no God formed before me or after me. I am God, there is no one else. I know of no other God. There is no other God. I am God, there is no one else. I made the world all alone. I am God, I am God. There is no other, there is no other. Over and over again until finally you say, okay, I get it. Uncle, uncle, you're God. There is no other. But some of you may be saying, But then why does the God of the Bible acknowledge other gods if there's no other God? This is very important. Write this down. Galatians 4 verse 8 says, However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. Galatians 4 8. You can make a God, small g, out of anything. It could be a relationship. It could be your car. It could be a TV show. It could be a video game. It could be anything that you put above God. Jesus put it this way. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6, and I'll add all these other things that you worry about to you, like food and clothing, etc. Amen? Put God first, and everything else will fall into place in your life. Put God first in your family. Put God first in your company. Put God first in your personal walk and everything else will fall into place. Have you experienced that? That's what happens. You put him first and he takes care of the rest. Have no other gods before me. You can make a God out of anything. 
And I want to show you just uh, in Deuteronomy, which is a few pages to the right now, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So it's the last book of Moses here. There's a second generation that's going to hear these 10 words or laws, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. They'll hear it in chapter 5. We won't go there because they're this, basically the same commands. But before that, here's what God says. He's speaking now through Moses to the next generation after Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy 4.35. To you was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is what? No other besides him. Out of the heavens, he let you hear his voice to discipline you. Deuteronomy 4.36. And on earth, he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words from the midst of the fire. Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. He personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in and give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below, and there is what? There's no other. Now, I could give you a ton of verses. Maybe go back and listen to the Wednesday night message. But here's a good summary verse. 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. That is the man or the God-man, Christ Jesus. 1 Chronicles 16.26 says this. All the gods, small g, of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. What is an idol? In rapid fire. Something opposed to the, to the true and living God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Something lifeless and dumb. 1 Corinthians 12.2. For Jews, idols, and pagan gods were identical. The term connoted to both Jews and most Christians something detestable. Deuteronomy 29.17. Ezekiel reveals that idols are a matter of the heart. They are a stumbling block, and they can estrange God's people from him. Ezekiel 14, 3 through 5. When God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel in his day, he says, I'm going to take you to the temple, the very building where God was to be worshipped, and I'm going to show you what's going on. And Ezekiel is told in chapter 8 to dig a hole through the wall to get a view of what's going on. And in the very temple, the lead elders and priests of the holy place are inside and they're worshiping the sun god. Now, God made the sun. So you don't worship the sun. You, you worship the God who made the sun and placed it in its very spot. You don't worship the moon. You worship the God who made the moon. And Ezekiel, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's Ezekiel. Uh, he looks through this hole, and he sees people who are uh, weeping for this false god, Tammuz. And God says, do you see what my people are doing? Do you see the abominations that they are committing? And in chapter 9, and you can read this this week, all of a sudden judgment comes to this place. And God marks the people not to be judged with a tav, which is the Hebrew letter that looks like a cross. And they get marked on the forehead. And when the judgment comes, anyone who has been weeping over the idolatry happening in the holy city is spared the judgment. Anybody that's been partaking of it is judged. 
And this becomes a picture of how the cross of Jesus Christ, they're marked with the tab, saves those. If you weep over what's happening today, because you have God's heart, not because you're perfect, but because you desire for God to be glorified. You're not under God's wrath because you've been saved by the cross of Jesus Christ. But this is what idols do. They produce nothing. In fact, they can alienate you from God. They can crowd uh, the true God out of your life. God put it this way in Deuteronomy 6, verse 12. Watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, Deuteronomy 6, 14, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. It doesn't seem like the gods of Egypt were much of a problem for Israel, but when they went into the promised land, the land of Canaan, that's when they got seduced by these false gods. Why? Because they were attractive. Because they offered fertility blessings and they offered you know, things that were exciting to the people. And sometimes Israel came into the land and they watched these other people groups and they said, well, maybe... You know, they seem to be doing well. Maybe, maybe we'll try that and try this. And all of a sudden, their hearts were taken away or moved away from the living God. Decide, Joshua tells the people, choose today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, Joshua 24, 15, we will serve the Lord, brethren. This is a decision that every household needs to make. You know, a lot of you have the Joshua 24, 15 verse somewhere in your house. And that's a declaration that you have made that I'm gonna put aside all other false gods and as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That means, brethren, I don't care what anybody else is doing. For me and my house, this is what we're gonna do. I hope you've declared that. I hope you've planted your flag. I hope you've decided that you will follow Jesus. The Lord God is an awesome God. Far be it from us, the people responded, that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. I'm gonna show you two verses in Jeremiah. Let's turn over there. You're gonna pass up the Psalms and Proverbs. Isaiah, go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived in a time when God's judgment was falling upon his people. And God gave him some hard stuff to share. And in Jeremiah 7, this is the first of two passages I want to show you. God begins to address the problem, which is idolatry. Jeremiah 7, look at verse 5. He says to his people, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly, Jeremiah 7, 5, practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin. Then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery and swear falsely, offer sacrifices to Baal, there's a false god, and walk after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, that's the temple, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Go to Jeremiah chapter 10. You're gonna walk after these gods and basically live apart from me all week long, and then you're gonna come into my house and say, we're delivered because we're standing in a holy building. 
Now, while it is true that God used symbols, he doesn't want anything made to represent him. We'll see that in a moment. He did allow symbols like the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. He did allow the temple to reflect his glory in many ways. But the temple was not God and the Ark was not God. And when the disciples were showing Jesus around the holy city in the last week of his uh, earthly ministry in his life before he died on the cross, they said, Lord, look at all these incredible temple buildings. And Jesus said, do you see these? I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. In less than a generation from the time that Jesus spoke that, the temple was destroyed to the ground by the Romans and it has never been rebuilt again to this day. We're almost 2,000 years removed from those words of Jesus. And by the way, that was a prophecy. And within 40 years of him speaking that, the temple was completely destroyed. And the temple became something known as Ichabod. The glory departed from it. it the building became more important to them than God. In 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines, uh, one of the arch enemies of Israel, steal the ark. And the people are like, oh no, they took our God. And they tried to put God in a box. Everybody with me? That's a little humor for you. God is not contained in an ark. God descended upon the ark to reveal himself in special occasions. But you can't box him. And the ark became symbolic of his presence. But here's the point. God is higher than any ark. Paul comes into the uh, city of Athens, Greece. It's all steeped in philosophy and education. All the bigwigs are there. And Paul sees this marketplace, almost like going to the mall today. And along the marketplace are 3,000 different uh, uh, objects built to different gods and goddesses, altars, even one to the unknown God, just in case we missed one. If there's any other God out there, this altar's for you. And Paul walks in, and the Bible says in Acts 17, 16, that he was annoyed. Do you like that? It's biblical to be annoyed. However, to be jealous for God's glory. Because he saw the city swimming in idols. 3,000 different altars to this God and goddess, this God, this God, this goddess, this God, this God. And Paul was annoyed because God was being dishonored. And, God, and Paul turned that annoyance into preaching. That'd be a good thing if we do that as well, right? He didn't go up into the Areopagus where they debated ideas and go, you're all going to hell in a handbasket. You're going to fry. See you later. Have a nice day. Hey, anybody want nowhere to get a... Sandwich? No. He was winsome. He said, what you worship in ignorance, I now proclaim to you. Then he said, the God who made the world and everything in it, he's not worshiped by human hands. He doesn't dwell in buildings that human hands have made. That's not who God is. And there he began to preach the good news of the gospel. That's what we need to do with our culture. Our culture's confused. Our culture doesn't know a whole lot about the Bible. Latest Barna poll, uh, they interview professing Christians, evangelicals, and when they peel back the onion, only 6% of professing evangelicals have a biblical worldview. And you know where the percentage is for millennials? 
who profess to be Christians. But then when you begin to ask them doctrinal questions and life questions, they don't really have a biblical worldview in navigating their life. Where is the disconnect? What is happening? And yet at the same time, you see something like the Chosen series, and it's being watched by millions and even billions of people around the world. There's a hunger for the things of God. And the, you know, the creator of the Chosen said, you know, I don't want this to replace the Bible, but people aren't reading anymore. I want it to move people to the Bible. Amen? And so here's one more. This Jeremiah 10. Hear the word of the Lord. He speaks to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the nations, 10-2. Do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the people are delusion. Because it is wood cut from the forest, talking about the idol now, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Now this, some people have thought that this is a Christmas tree and that it's wrong to have a Christmas tree because they cut something down and then they begin to decorate it with silver and gold. Brethren, there's no Christmas in the book of Jeremiah. <laughs> You guys, got, you got to realize that he's writing six, seven hundred years before Jesus was ever born. This is not a Christmas tree. But I will say to you, if you go and cut down a Christmas tree and you put your tinsel and lights on it and put it in your living room and then you walk into the house and do something like this, a Christmas tree, a Christmas tree, you're the only one who understands me. We got to talk. But a Christmas tree actually finds its origins in Christian Germany, where it was to remind people of eternal life. <laughs> Some of you are never going to get over what I just did there. <laughs> and I get it. But I thought you needed a little bit of humor in the midst of commandments, okay? Anyway, so here's the deal. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, not the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz, are they... They, idols, cannot speak. They must be carried because they can't walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. There is none like thee, O Lord. By contrast, are great. Great is thy name and might. Who would not fear thee, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is thy due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like thee. But they are altogether stupid and foolish. Stupid is a biblical word. In their discipline of delusion, and it's almost like Jeremiah is saying this, your idol is wood. If you got to carry your God, you're in trouble. Don't do that anymore. Don't go with what the nations do because they live in a delusion. Professing to be wise, they became fools and they begin to build things in human likeness, four-footed creatures, animals, and so forth. And they worship the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forevermore. Last week, I went on a couple-minute tirade on climate change. Why? Because climate change is not the biggest thing facing humanity. We need to repent and return to the living God. And someone said to me afterwards... Thank you. I will tell you that uh, as a pastor, we, I never want to be, you know, 
clapping to, on a point because all glory goes to God. Uh, but I will tell you a quick story. There was a pastor who, you know, the congregation was regularly clapping for points that he made and he went into a five-minute diatribe about how they shouldn't clap for him, they should only clap for the Lord, and then they gave him a standing ovation. <laughs> so whatever you want to do with that, you, anyway. But here's the thing. Do you know the ancient gods have reappeared? Because climate change, as much as we should take care of the planet, has become the issue, and so much so that in the ancient world, the, the gods and goddesses, they tried to appease them so that they would keep the climate well, they would get fertility blessings, crops and the like. We're doing the same thing, brethren. I'm not talking about reasonable stewardship of the planet. I'm talking about the extremes that we are going to now, where we've made this the number one issue, and it is far from the number one issue. And as I mentioned last week, the world ain't going anywhere until God decides. And so idols are summarized this way. Psalm 115, verse 8 says, those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them, Psalm 115, 8, you become like the God you serve. God's purpose and his laws is to shape us more into who he is. We're to be conformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. But if you make a God and you worship that God, then you're going to become like that God. Here's an example. Ray Comfort is one of the great evangelists of our time. He goes up to people and he'll say, you know, he'll ask them about heaven or about God's law. And someone will say, respond like this. He'll, he'll talk about that God is holy and righteous and that there's a judgment coming. And they'll say something like this. Oh, my God would never judge anybody. My God would never do that. My God would, and they keep saying, my God. And finally, Ray says, do you know that your God is a God of your own imagination? You've made up a God that you're comfortable with and then you worship that God, but that God is impotent to save you because that God doesn't exist. It's your idol. And that's what the world has done. They reject the words of Scripture, make a God that they're comfortable with, worship it, and claim that it's spirituality. Or worship multiple other deities along with the God of the Bible and claim that they're okay with God. And Jesus says, no. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one's coming to the Father except through me. Now, much can be said about this, but we're going to move on for the sake of time Back to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to wind it down because I want to hit the mark and get all six verses in. So commandment two, you shall not make an idol for yourself of any likeness. You have no other gods before me is number one. Number two, you shall not make an idol. Make for yourself an idol. Notice, first of all, have no other gods. Possession now don't make a god. Don't manufacture a god. Don't make for yourself 20 verse four of Exodus an idol. Or any likeness of what is in heaven, celestial, above, on the earth beneath, terrestrial, or in the water under the earth, that would be aquatic. Don't take any representation of anything like this, sun, cloud, stars, constellations, in the heavens, earth, animals, etc., a bull, a goat, whatever, half man, half hawk. Don't do that. And don't take anything aquatic, anything under the water, a great sea creature, whatever, because those are things that God made. Don't take them, make a representation of them, and here's the key, and worship them. This is not verses about artistic expression. 
This is not that you can't paint the heavens. This is not that you can't paint a whale. This is about idolatry. Don't make something in these images and then worship it. That's what God is saying. God is the master artist. It's not something about art here. It is about idolatry. And so he says, don't make any of these things and then don't bow down and worship them. You shall not worship them or serve them, five. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, let me park here. Someone as famous as Oprah Winfrey has said, she grew up in the Baptist church, and she has an issue with verses like this because it says that God is jealous. So if you think of jealousy in a negative context, like I'm jealous of you because you drive that car. I'm jealous of you because you look like that. I'm jealous of your ability on the computer, or I'm jealous of your sporting ability. I'm just jealous, and you're coveting. That's a negative, sinful jealousy. But there is a holy jealousy, and when you're wholly jealous in a marriage context, think about it, you're jealous if your spouse cheats on you with somebody else. If your spouse was doing the wrong thing in that area and you went something like this, you know, I don't really care. They're, they're messing around with somebody else. It's fine. It's good. No, then we got to talk to you, right? You should be jealous with a holy jealousy because when you're jealous in the right way, a holy jealousy, it means you love somebody so much. You've made a devoted covenant with them and you don't want anything to break that up. That's a holy jealousy. That's what God has. And that, by the way, shows that God cares what we do. And so here's a scary verse. Visiting the iniquity, it could be, visiting could be an act of mercy or judgment. In this verse, it's judgment. The iniquity of the fathers on the children. Now, children, you need to really listen up so you understand this one. You nudge your parents a little bit. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers or the parents on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who what? Who hate me. This is Stuart. He's a commentator. This widely misunderstood verse does not represent an assertion that God actually punishes an innocent generation for sins of a previous generation. Rather, this oft-repeated theme speaks of God's determination to punish successive generations for committing the same sins learned from their parents. In other words, God will not say, I won't punish this generation for what they're doing to break my covenant because after all, they merely learned it from their parents who did it as well. But to this is contrasted his real wish to show covenant loyalty or love, verse six, to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. By the greatest numerical contrast in the Bible, three or four to a thousands or thousands, God identified eloquently his real desire to have people remain loyal forever so that he might in turn show the rich blessings of his resulting loyalty to them. A couple of comments. Number one, how you live as parents and grandparents matters. And it even matters to children yet to be born. And I will say that even though the Bible says that children are not judged for the sins of their parents, they often suffer the consequences of the sins of their parents and learn to often embrace the sinful habits of their parents. So if you have, for example, how many of you are first-generation Christian? Before that, there was not Christianity in your household. Raise up your hand high so I can see it. 
Okay, it's, it's a good portion of our crowd. So you're a first-generation Christian. So if you grew up in an atheist household or maybe a, of a different uh, world religion, etc., then then that rippled back to you. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't be saved, as is evidenced by the hands that are up. But it simply means that what happened with your parents and grandparents, if it wasn't founded uh, upon God's principles and love for God, it ripples down. And people often feel the weight of that. But it also ripples in a different direction. Because for those of you who have now planted your flag, the generations to come are now going to benefit from that decision that you have made to put the Lord first in your life, and they're going to reap now the blessings of that decision. Amen? This is verse 6, and this is where we end. But by contrast to verse 5, God shows loving kindness to thousands, or a thousand generations, NIV, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Yes, God is a jealous God, but what he deeply desires is to show mercy, to show loving kindness, that's the Hebrew word hased. It speaks of a covenant loyalty situation relationship. I'm loyal to you because you showed me loyalty. I want to show my loyal love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And God is faithful. And Psalm 115 verse 8 says, He remembers his covenant forever, the word he commanded to a thousand generations. Psalm 105 verse 8. And Father, as we wind down this message, we think of Jesus, the ultimate uh, display of your faithfulness. Because what the law couldn't do, weak as it was, weak as I am, Jesus did. And Jesus, with your head and heart bowed, lived the perfect life that we could never live. He fulfilled the law. He died on the cross to pay the ransom for our debt, to pay the penalty we deserved. And then he rose to defeat death and to show who he was and to make a way for us. And Jesus Christ is the answer to the fact that we missed the mark. And Father, would you forgive us for the many times that we've missed the mark? We've fallen short. Sometimes we've done it on purpose. And we kind of thumbed our nose at you and we said, I'm going to do it my way. And Maybe for some of us, we would say, there's idols in my life. There's things crowding out the living God. Things to my own uh, hurt and harm. And Lord, I want to turn from those things. And if you're not sure that you're a Christian right now, this would be a wonderful time to realize that the Ten Commandments don't save you. Keeping them doesn't save you because you can't keep them. Jesus saves. And he came to satisfy that law and he came to die for you and he was treated on the cross as though he had committed your sins and my sins and he took the wrath of God at the cross for you. God's love came down again in the person of his son and he is literally a prayer away and if you want to know him the Bible calls to forsake your idols to repent and to place your trust in the one true and living God. What he said about life, about salvation, what he says about us, and how much he loves us. And you have to have a moment where you decide for yourself, as for me, in my house, we're going to serve you, Lord. Maybe you need to rededicate yourself to that. 
in your own Christian walk and family. So for all of us right now, there's a prayer that you can pray. There's no perfect prayer, but something like this, Lord Jesus, pray it if it's you. Thank you for coming down to save me. Thank you for fulfilling the law perfectly. Thank you for dying in my place at the cross. Thank you for your sacrifice because of your love. I turn away from my idols, my sins in my life. I'm asking for your forgiveness. And I'm asking that you would make me new and let me be born again to a living hope and a better covenant in Christ. Father, for those who are praying, you know every heart. Would you encourage those who are feeling weak and maybe stressed out and poured out? And would you draw those who don't know you yet but would like to know you into a personal relationship with the living God so that they might know the one who is true and just and loving and faithful? Would you bless your people, this wonderful congregation, Lord, the precious uh, folks that are here, the precious families that are here. Uh, It is such a wonderful body, and I'm asking that you would bless them, keep them, that your beautiful face shines upon them, and that you give them peace in knowing you. Rich blessings ahead, Lord, and just strengthen them in everything that they need. In Jesus' name I pray, all God's people said, Amen. amen.